good to be here. Uh, we are living in San Diego now, suffering for Jesus in San Diego. Pray for us. Uh, Pastor Jürgen and Pastor Leanne send their love. They love this house and, and love uh, Pastors John and Pastor Danielle, just as I do as well. It's good to be here. Um, I'm, I'll always be an Aussie at heart, okay? 40 years in Australia. Uh, but I've got a confession. I've been there two years and I'm actually now legitimately about 8% American. I'm sorry. I'm 8% American because when I first arrived in America, I was about 100 kilograms. Now I'm about 109. So this part was born in the United States of America, okay? I'm trying to kill it in Jesus' name. But uh, anyway, it's tough because burgers and bacon. Anyway, uh, but it's good to be here. Hey, man. Uh, it's good to be here. And uh, I'm excited. I just want to share a lot of my story today. Uh, I grew up in Melbourne. Uh, don't hold that against me. Uh, I grew up in Melbourne and my parents divorced when I was about five or six. Uh, my dad did a whole heap of drugs. We'd stay with my dad on Friday night and he'd have about 20 of his mates over and they'd be partying and doing marijuana and excessive alcohol. And uh, my mum, who we lived with six days a week, she also dabbled in drugs. Uh, most of my aunties and uncles did drugs. Even some of my grandparents did drugs. You know you're in trouble when granddad smokes bongs, okay? That's a, that's a bad start to life. But I uh, followed in my dad's footsteps and at about 12 or 13 started to smoke uh, cigarettes, marijuana, uh, binge drinking. By the time I was 15, I was injecting speed, uh, little bits of heroin, acid, ecstasy. At 16, I took an acid trip at a house where they were involved in satanic worship and I overdosed, was unconscious for about four hours and I was tormented by demons. Uh, that left me with what psychologists would have diagnosed as drug-induced psychosis. For the next three years of my life, the television would speak to me, the radio would speak to me. Uh, I was suicidal, I almost took my life. Uh, I'm gonna share that part of my story in the last 10 minutes of this message. Uh, it's a bit of an out there kind of story. Uh, I moved to the Gold Coast when I was 21 to Surface Paradise. Uh, actually to get off drugs, I wasn't the smartest young guy, uh, had killed a few brain cells and uh, got in partying again, as you can imagine. Uh, but long story short, from 13 to 23, I used drugs almost every day of my life. Uh, but I had an auntie who I'm going to preach a bit about today who prayed for me for 17 years that I would encounter the love of Jesus Christ. And uh, every year she would send me a birthday card and it would always have Jeremiah 29:11 in it, which says, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to give you a hope, not to harm you, but to prosper you, says the Lord God Almighty. And down the bottom would say, Jesus loves you. And if I could be real for a moment, I remember I'd received that card. I'd just turned 23. And I remember receiving that card and thinking, you know, this whole Jesus loves you, Jeremiah 20. I'm like, yep, she's a Christian crackpot. And sort of just threw the card to the side. It was two weeks later, I was dressed in nightclub clothes. It was a Saturday night. Uh, my mum rings me from Melbourne and she says, hey, you never even rang your auntie to say thank you for the card. And so just to get my mum off my back, I think I'll quickly ring my auntie. It'll just take 30 seconds. Thank you for the card. And that will be the end of that. And so I pick up the phone to this lady that's been praying for 17 years. And as I hear her voice, as she says, hello, hello. The only way I can describe it is it was literally like heaven opened up. And the love of the Father tangibly came from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. And, and in that moment, I was so overwhelmed by this love, this presence that I'd never felt before, that as I said hello back to my auntie, I literally 
broke and began to weep in God's presence. And that was the first time ever where my auntie helped me to pray a prayer where I invited Jesus Christ to come and live in my heart for the very first time. I, I went to church the very next day and uh, it was that Sunday night on the Gold Coast, a church called Surf City Christian Church. And uh, I publicly made a decision for Jesus and I was fully born again. I was fully full of joy, but still struggled with this 10-year addiction. See, who knows that you can love Jesus with all your heart and be born again, but still have stuff going on in your life. It's called being a human being. And it's why we need a savior. His name is Jesus Christ. And and so I loved him, but I just struggled with this addiction. And I'd only been in church for about two or three Sundays. And I heard the pastor say that there was nothing that God couldn't do. And as a two or three week old Christian, I went home to my surface paradise unit and I got on my hands and knees. And I started to cry out to God. I said, God, I'm sick of being a drug addict. I've been one my whole life, pretty much. God, I'm sick of being an addict. And I want you, the pastor said that you, there's nothing you couldn't do. I want you to take this addiction away from me. And all of a sudden on my hands and knees as a two or three week year old Christian, I literally began to hit the ground and faith began to rise. Faith began to rise because a lady had been praying for 17 years. And, and as faith began to rise, I said, God, when will you do it? And as, as clear as anything, I hear this voice in my head and my heart that, that said 726. And I was a little bit startled. I was thinking, well, what does that mean, 726? Like, and as I'm thinking to myself, I sort of, as I'm thinking, you know, what does that mean? I hadn't looked at my clock for a couple hours. And as I was thinking, what does that mean? I caught a glimpse of my kitchen clock and it was exactly 7.26. And it was at that moment that I knew that I knew that I knew that I'll never need drugs again, never need cigarettes again, never had a desire, never had a withdrawal. You know, I tell you, the thing that I love is that what took the devil 23 years of his downward, destructive, dysfunctional, demonic cycle just took God one word. One word to say it's finished, it's done, it's broken, it's over. And you know what? Maybe you've got stuff going on in your heart. Maybe you've been going around the same mountain over and over again. Can I tell you today, it's not just cliche. One word can change everything. One word can heal a marriage. One word can heal a body. One word can break an addiction. And, and you know, God's just been so incredible. And as I lay on the floor that night, he spoke to me about five things that were going to happen in my life. I don't have time to share them all now, uh, but I'll tell you one. The, the night before this encounter, 726 encounter, night before, I was in a new Christians class in a Bible study. And there was just six of us in the study. And uh, all these young adults start turning up to the church dressed in fancy dress costumes. Sorry, before I go there, I've got a photo of what I look like. Uh, as a drugo, can I put that up? There I am. There I am, making a cake. I can't tell you what's in the cake. Uh, no, no, I promise it's not, maybe. Uh, anyway, that's what I look like. And, and so back to the, the story. I, uh, the night before I'm in this Bible study, you can turn it down because it's embarrassing. Uh, I'm in this Bible study, there's just six of us and all these young adults start turning up to the church dressed in fancy dress. I said to this guy, you know, what's going on? And I'm brand new to church. And is this a cult or something? And, 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 and you know, he says, oh, no, it's one of the girls. She's just having a party and she's using one of the, the church rooms to have her party. And then as he's talking, this girl that was having the party walked into the room that we were in 
just to get something out of a cupboard, and she was dressed as Barbie, you know, Barbie doll. She had Barbie hair, Barbie skirt, Barbie shoes, Barbie bag, the whole Barbie thing going on. She walked in, I started drooling a little bit, my eyes were popping out. I said, how you doing? Uh, she ignored me because I looked like the cake guy, and uh, that was the end of my Barbie experience. Uh, I've been in counseling ever since. No, no, not really. And so she went off and had her party, and uh, the next night, I'm having this crazy God encounter. I'm delivered of drugs and cigarettes. And, and as I lay on the floor, Holy Spirit speaks to me and he says, Lucas, the girl you saw last night, she's the girl you're going to marry. I said, God, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it for you. God, send me. I will go. And so the next day I got up and I changed my name to Ken. And, and I didn't really. No. Took her a year and a half to come to her senses and see what she was missing out on. No, 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 no. It took me a year and a half to be even close to being ready for a godly, functional relationship. And, uh, and, and sorry about that. And that was annoying me. Anyway, sorry. Um, and uh, so, so we've actually now been married 17, almost 17 years. And uh, I've got a photo of what Barbie looked like that night at her 23rd birthday. Let's put that up on the screen. There she was. Still looks just as beautiful today. She's in the service today. Her real name is Jackie. If you give Jackie a round of applause. And let me quickly show you what happens when you marry Barbie. Next slide. There we go. Josiah and Caleb are here today as well. God's just been so good to us. And uh, we've been traveling around the world preaching for about seven years, based at C3 San Diego for the last couple, which we absolutely love. And uh, I've got a little bit of resource, and in particular, this one is called To Helen Back, and it's basically my whole story. You're going to hear the, the crazy part at the end. I've seen so many, this is for you to buy, to give to someone else, someone that will connect with my story. I gave this to my real estate agent on the Sunshine Coast, and I warned him, I said, it's a freaky story. And he rings me a week later, he was doing an appraisal on my house, he rings me back and gives me the appraisal, and he says, oh, by the way, I listened to your story. He said, you weren't lying. It was freaky. And he says, I hope you don't mind, but I gave it to our receptionist to listen to, and she just wants to have a chat with you. Is that okay? And so he puts the receptionist on the phone, and she says, listen, I just wanted you to know, I haven't been following Jesus for the last seven years, but I listened to your story. I cried the whole way through it, and I want you to know I've given my life back to Jesus Christ. And so that's for you to give to someone else. And then... And then I have a, a download card with about 40 messages. And most of these messages really speak to brokenness. I see a lot of people set free of anxiety. Tonight, we're going to pray for people with fear, with anxiety. But also, I'm going to preach on faith. And I actually believe that God's going to speak to people about their next faith step. So position yourself tonight. But there's 40 messages. These are 30 bucks. If you get one of these, you just have a CD for free. Or you can buy the CD by itself. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, before I read it, let me just give you the background to what's happening at this point in history. Saul was the first king of Israel, but really Saul gave in to his own sinful nature. He didn't properly follow God. And eventually Saul's life ends with him deliberately surrounded by the enemy. And rather than allow them to kill him and make sport of him, he deliberately falls on his sword. On the same day, his son Jonathan, who happened to be best friends with David, is also killed in battle. Saul is killed, Saul's son is killed. And eventually David becomes the second king of Israel. And one of the first things he does as king is found here in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. He says, David asked, is there anyone still left from the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? 
And rather than read the whole chapter, let me tell you what happens. There's a servant named Ziba, and he says, well, actually, Saul has a, uh, Jonathan has a son called Mephibosheth, who is crippled in both of his feet, and he lives in a place called Lodabar. This young crippled boy is brought before the king, and he's petrified. He thinks he's about to be killed because that's what happens when you're related to the previous king. But when he arrives, David says, fear not. He says, I'm going to give you back the land that your grandfather saw lost. I'm going to give you servants to work the land. And the coolest part, he says, and from now on, you will sit at my table as if you were one of the king's sons. You know, the thing I love about this story is the the Old Testament is often a shadow of what is to come. But the plan of God for the church, for you and I, is hidden in this particular story. And that would be sort of cool if this was a parable that God made up. And then said, surprise, there's a hidden message in the story that I made up. But this is not a parable. This is three generations of history that just naturally unfolded. And God says, surprise, my plan is woven into the very fabric of history. And I'm going to need some volunteers. I'm going to need someone to be a grandfather. So it is your birthday today. So that would be good. I'm going to get Isaac to come over this side. So if you could come this side, if I could get you to help me as well. And then if you could help me with the hat as well, it really quickly, that'd be cool. And I'm going to get you guys to send oldest to younger. So you can go down the end. Isaac, you can stay by yourself. And all right, you can take the youngest spot and you can jump in the middle. All right. Well, no, no, Isaac, you're down the other end. All right. So what we've got here is we've got three generations. We've got grandfather Saul, We've got his son, Jonathan, and then his son, Mephibosheth, okay? And then over here, I chose uh, Isaac deliberately to be David because the Bible says David was handsome, okay? And, and we're in church, so I've got to tell the truth. Isaac has heard this message on podcasts, and before the service, he asked me if he could be David. So, so there you go, man. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, But all right, cool. We've got three generations. I want you to catch this, right? The first, remember the first of this generation. See, people often think Saul wasn't really the chosen king because he did such a bad job. But God chose Saul. God wanted Saul to be a great king, to rule, reign, have authority and dominion. Saul gave into his own sinful nature and lost everything God wanted him to have. The first, the first of this generation is a picture of the first man. The first Adam, who God also chose. God wanted Adam to rule, reign, have authority and dominion. But Adam also gave in to his own sinful nature and lost everything God wanted him to have. The, the first of this generation, first of this is, is the first Adam. The second in Jonathan is a picture of the second Adam, or the Bible calls him the last Adam in Jesus Christ. See, in that particular day, everybody knew that it was Jonathan's birthright to inherit the kingdom because he was Saul's son. But if you go back a few chapters, Jonathan has this moment with David, who in this story represents God the Father. And Jonathan comes before David and he lays down his robe, his belt, and his sword. And what he's saying to to David is, although the kingdom is mine to claim, I recognize what the Spirit of God is doing and I lay down what is mine for the good of God the Father and for the good of everybody else. See, Jonathan is a picture of Jesus Christ who could have come 2,000 years ago to take back what was his. But rather than take it back, he came to lay down his very life for the good of God the Father, for the good of you and I. Uh, Three generations. The first is the first Adam. The second is the last Adam. Mephibosheth represents everybody to come after Jesus Christ. 
it says he is crippled in his feet. In other words, he cannot get to where he needs to be, which is an intimate relationship with God. Symbolic of a generation in this city that are crippled by sin and it stops them from being where they need to be, which is an intimate relationship with God. It's actually not his fault that he's crippled. Because of his grandfather's sin, he was dropped as a four-year-old little boy, and now he's crippled because of his grandfather's sin. Just like it's not this generation's fault, but since the very first man in Adam, every human being is born with this crippling disease called sin that stops them from being in intimacy with God. He lives in a place called Lodabar, which means place of desolation. Again, symbolic of a generation that doesn't know Jesus, that are crippled by sin and trapped and living in desolation. But then the greatest part of the story is David, who represents God the Father. And we read it in verse 1. He says, Who can I bless from the house of Saul for the sake of Jonathan? But when you understand all what I've just preached, what he's really saying is who that's trapped in desolation, who that's been crippled by sin, could I invite to sit at my table as a son or daughter of the Most High God that I could give an inheritance to, that I could give a destiny to for the sake of my son, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross at Calvary. Let's give these guys a big round of applause. See... My, my mind races a bit because we had God the Father, we had God the Son, where was Holy Spirit? And also, I think a bit because Mephibosheth, he lived in the poor part of town. Uh, David lived in the rich part of town. How did this young crippled boy get all the way to the king's palace? It's not a far stretch to think that one of the king's servants would have went and got the boy and brought him to the palace. The servant in the story that knew everything about this boy, where he lived, who he was, who he was related to, was a servant named Zeba. And if you trace Zeba's name back in the Hebrew, you eventually arrive at the words army or Lord's army. See, it is the Lord's army's job to go out to the place of desolation, to find people that are crippled and broken by sin and carry them into the palace where they would find destiny and identity and who they are in Christ. You say, where's the Holy Spirit? Well, Acts 1.8, in my own words, says that, that the Holy Spirit gives us dynamic power to be effective witnesses all over the planet. Where was the Holy Spirit? He was on the Lord's army, anointing and empowering the army to carry someone to their destiny. See, I'm so thankful I had an auntie that wasn't just into doing fellowship every week, although it's incredibly important. I'm so thankful I had an auntie who wasn't just into listening to the Word of God every week, although it's incredibly important. I'm thankful that I had an auntie that knew she was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And even if it took 17 years, she was going to carry this crippled, broken boy until I found my place sitting at the king's table, partaking of destiny and inheritance. I want to quickly give you three things that my auntie did, and Jesus sort of does these three things. I'll explain that at the end. The first thing my auntie did to bring me to the place of salvation is, number one, she came down to where I was at. You know, when I was at my worst, there were times that I was injecting speed, which is sort of like ice. It's an amphetamine. It keeps you awake. There were times that I'd been awake for three days without any sleep. I can remember times where I'd licked my lips compulsively just because your brain is going so fast that my lips became giant scabs. 
I'd scratched myself with paranoia and end up with scabs and marks over my arms and face. After three days of no sleep, I, I looked white and pasty. You looked like death warmed up. You hardly make any sense at all because you're a scatterbrain. But you know what? I can't remember a time where my auntie came to visit and I was in that state and I felt worse because of her visit. Because she never rode in on her Christian high horse. She never rode in telling me how bad I was, telling me how I was a terrible sinner. I just needed to look in the mirror to know how bad life was. But every time she came, she came down to where I was at. She spoke a language that I could understand. She came down to where I was at so that she could help take me to where I needed to be. Aren't you glad she came down to where I was at the first point? Aren't you glad Jesus does the same thing? Aren't you glad we don't serve a God that stayed in heaven? Aren't you glad we don't serve a God that says, hey, when you get your life up to my standard, then we can start to do relationship. But we serve a God that said, no, let me come down to your brokenness. Let me come down to your mess. Let me come down to your struggle so that I can help take you to where you need to be. The second thing my auntie did, number two, is she simply embarrassed us with generosity. Matthew, Matthew uh, 5.16, I think it is, if the guys can put it on the screen, 5.16. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You know, my auntie has still never been married to this day. She's never had a great income, but as a single mum family, I can never remember a time when she turned up to her house empty-handed. There was always either a box of chocolates or at the very least a card that had beautiful words about our family. You know, whenever we'd move houses, there was no money to get the cleaners in or the moving truck guys. It was do it yourself. And of my mum's six brothers and sisters, she was always the first one to arrive and the last one to leave because she just made a decision that she was going to embarrass us with generosity until the day that we gave praise to God in heaven. You know, I preached this exact message at a church in Perth and there was a doctor in the crowd who had such a heart for drug addicts and they'd all come to his clinic, but he felt helpless. He didn't know how to help them. He listened to this same message and rather than run off to lunch like everyone else did, there's nothing wrong with that. He, he went straight to the supermarket and he filled his entire boot and back seat with groceries. He knew where one of these drug addicts lived and it uninvited turned up to his house. The shock of the boy when he sees his doctor standing at the front door and carrying uh, many bags of groceries and he continued to go out to his car and back in and out to his car and back in and filled his freezer, his fridge and his pantry with groceries. He turned to this young drug addict who was in shock and he said, you need to understand that what I've done today is completely unconditional. You owe me nothing. He said, but I did want to give you an invite tonight. We've got this guy preaching in our church and he's got a bit of a crazy story. And I just wanted to see if you'd like to be my special guest at the meeting tonight. Guess who the first young man standing at the altar that night receiving Christ for the first time? I watched tears run down his cheek. See, it's not rocket science. Just let people keep seeing your good deeds and eventually they'll give praise to God in heaven. You could be generous with your words. You could be generous with your hands. You can be generous with your wallet. I said Jesus does the same thing, Romans 5.8. It says that God demonstrates his love for us, his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I love that, that he didn't wait for me to become a preacher. 
He didn't wait for me to get my life together and then said, all right, now I'll die for you. But while I was at my worst, Christ said, let me go to the cross and pay the price that Lucas Connell does not deserve, that he has not earned to give me eternity with God in heaven. The last thing, and just if the keyboarder could come, I want to spend the last 10 minutes just to share this story. But the last thing my auntie did was she simply, and it's the thing I'm most thankful for, is that she prayed. You know, for 17 years, she prayed. Not every day, she wasn't super Christian. But for 17 years consistently, she just prayed. You know, she's told me the prayer that she prayed. And she's actually a, a Baptist lady. And, you know, I love the Holy Spirit. I'm a Pentecostal and love the Holy Spirit. And she didn't speak in any other language or, you know, she didn't have a keyboard in the background. Oh, that was perfect. You're good. No one else does that. I'm telling you, there's an anointing on you. Anyway, you know, she just old school would get on her hands and knees each night and she's told me the prayer she prayed for me word for word. See, I've got a lot of cousins. Both my mum and dad's come from families of seven children. And of all the cousins, I was the one leading all the other cousins astray, getting them on cigarettes and drugs and alcohol at very early age. She told me the prayer. She prayed it went like this. She said, God, I see what the devil's doing in his life. But I pray that you'd make him a giant killer. So she prayed for 17 years. You know, from the moment I got born again, I almost immediately found myself in ministry within a few months. I've been a youth pastor, young adult pastor, a campus pastor for the last seven years. We've been living by faith traveling all over the world wherever God would open up. We've seen more than 10,000 people give their lives to Jesus Christ. I've seen thousands of people have radical encounters with the Holy Spirit where many have ended in freedom of anxiety and addiction and depression and a healing of sexual abuse and all kinds of things. And I don't tell you this story to make myself sound good, but just to show you all I'm doing is riding the wave of 17 years of prayer. Here's the story I'll finish. I've got to warn you, if you're new to church, this is a bit of a freaky story, but there's no other way I can tell it. It's just the way I perceived it to happen. I was with this girl. I was 16 years old. We were going to take an acid trip that night. We went to this house to get it. The guys were involved in satanic worship. They were, you, you know, it was pretty normal back then in the early 90s where there was bands of like Slayer and with, with pictures of demons on them and satanic symbols. And, and we went into this house and... and we bought the drug and the guy said, well, why don't you take the drug here with us? And I took the acid trip and after about half an hour, I end up, as much as I can remember, unconscious on this bedroom floor. And although I was fully unconscious, in my mind's eye, I was very awake. I wasn't religious. I sort of believed in God, but not really. But all of a sudden, this, this evil, this, this evil that I could never imagine existed came over my entire being. And then this being stood before me in my mind's eye so clearly and he literally dripped with evil. And he spoke to me. He said, Lucas, you're dead. Nobody likes you. Nobody loves you. Nobody wants your soul. Who do you want to give your soul to? And then like a lawyer, he painted the picture of every wrong thing that I've ever done in my entire life. I'll tell you what the most tormenting thing about the whole experience was, is in that moment, I knew I was guilty. I've always been a good talker, but I knew I was guilty. Because we're all guilty, and the only thing that makes you innocent is the blood of Jesus Christ. 
And he continued to, 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 you know, prove that no one would want my soul and he was the only one that would take it. I just knew not to let go. I eventually went to this next phase where I was tormented in my mind. <clears throat> like I could never properly articulate. Ridiculed, mocked, teased, laughed at like I was the butt of every single joke. Eventually I was thrown into this disgusting pit. I saw myself thrown, these demon creatures literally coming down, ripping my soul apart. As I was just about no more, I remember screaming, thinking, I'm just 16. This can't be where I end up. And as I was just about no more, I woke up on that bedroom floor. I got out of that place as quick as you can imagine. I don't know why I remember this part so clearly, but I remember standing at my bunk beds about one o'clock in the morning, about to walk into my room. And I remember leaning against it thinking, that felt like the realest thing that I've ever encountered in my whole life. That was realer than real. And I thought it couldn't be real. It's just what they call a bad trip. It was two weeks later, I was out with some friends and we were in Melbourne and about to go into a bar called the Cantina Bar. We were sitting at the front and I was on the passenger side, back seat. My friend was in the middle. We we're about to go into this bar. I was minding my own business and completely randomly, my friend turns to me and he says, I heard you met the devil the other week. And as soon as he said those words, I literally felt the same evil manifest and come over my entire being. It was so powerful that I was literally frozen in fear, paralyzed in fear for a few minutes. He's just asked about the devil. I'm frozen in fear. I couldn't speak. I couldn't move. He's just asked about the devil at the front of the cantina bar. Then he looks at me, but it was like he looked into me. And he said, guess who's going to be at the cantina bar tonight? And it was literally like the evil spoke through him to me, basically saying, I'm still here. For the next three or four years, I had what psychologists would have called drug-induced psychosis, where the television would answer my thoughts, the radio would answer my thoughts. I would hear this evil voice speak to me every day saying, no one likes you, no one loves you, you should kill yourself. The thing that makes it even more crazy is this voice convinced me that who I'd met that night was not the devil, but I'd met God Almighty. I'd met the creator of the entire world. And every day I'd go to school and pretend everything was normal. I never told one person what was going on. And every day that voice would say, no one likes you, no one loves you, you should kill yourself. And every now and again I'd ask this question in my mind. I'd say, well, hang on a minute. If you're God and you control all things and you want me to kill myself, then why didn't I just die that night when I was on the acid trip? Why didn't I stay there forever? And as sharp as anything that voice would say in my head, because I hate you so much, I'm going to torment you here on earth. And then I'm going to take you and torment you for the all of eternity. And as a 16 and 19 year old boy, there were so many nights that I cried myself to sleep in hopelessness. Because I believed I'd met God, but he took pleasure in my torment. Eventually it got too much. And at 19 years old, I made a decision to end my life. I worked out how I was going to do it and I was going to do it in a week or two and I was a week or two away from ending my life and of all shows I was sitting and I was watching Oprah Winfrey. Oprah saved my life. It wasn't Dr. Phil. And on her show, people were there and they were talking about how they had died for three or four minutes, two minutes, they had flatline and they were there to talk about what they'd seen. And they all talked about a white light, a white tunnel that was full of peace and I was sort of getting annoyed thinking I didn't see no white tunnel. There's a man stood up in the crowd. He says, Oprah, my story's different. Can I share it? She says, go, you've got two minutes. 
He says he was a professional, he was a staunch atheist, which means he believed 100% there is no God. He was traveling through Europe. He wasn't a drug addict. He wasn't a bad person by worldly standards. He was traveling through Europe and he had a perforation in his intestines that exploded. He was rushed to a European hospital and on that operating table, he flatlined. He was dead for about three minutes. To his shock, because he was a staunch atheist, his spirit and his soul left his body. And he was hovering above the ceiling, watching the doctors try and bring him back to life. He said these beings came to meet him and they started to take him away from where his body was. He said, the further we got away, I started to realize that these beings weren't nice. They began to laugh at me, to tease me, to mock me, to beat me. And then he said something that blew my mind because I'd felt so alone for so long. He said, they turned into these demon creatures and they began to rip his soul apart. And then he said something that changed my world for the better. He said, a little voice on the inside, an atheist professor said, ask God for help. And an atheist professor that had never prayed a prayer in his entire life prayed his very first prayer. And while demons were ripping his soul apart, he's clinically dead. He says, God, if you're real, can you help me? And he woke up with defibrillators on his chest and he gave glory to Jesus Christ on Oprah Winfrey. It was in that moment that I realized the answer to my question as to why I didn't die that night and I received such a hopeless demonic answer. But it was at that moment that I realized the reason I didn't die is because there was a God in heaven who was much more powerful than the devil and he had a plan and a purpose for my life and he loved me dearly. See, that truth helped me so much. Even though I didn't become a Christian for a few more years, the psychosis stopped because the psychosis was connected to a lie. But what I've come to realize is that truth that I just shared, part of it's a half truth. I mean, 100% that day, I realized there was one way more powerful. That's true. But if my theology says the reason I didn't die is because God loved me and had a plan for my life, then you've got to ask the question, why do drug addicts die every single day? Doesn't God love them? Bible says he does why do people in retirement homes die every single day without the love of God doesn't God love them doesn't God have a plan for them the Bible says he does and what I've become convinced of is the only reason that I'm standing at Kiwana C3 today in the flesh the only reason that I didn't become a little article in the local paper 25 years ago that would have talked about another young boy that was lost in the battle of addiction the only reason that today I'm not just a photo on my mother's mantelpiece that would have been my, my debutante ball photo in my ugly green suit and way too much gel in my hair. And 25 years later, people would have walked into my mum's house and they would have saw the photo and said, Who, who's the boy? And with a tear in her eye, my mum would have talked about her boy that really was a good kid, but one night he took a drug and we never got to see him again. See, the only reason I'm standing here, in the, the only reason I'm standing here in the flesh, the only reason I'm not that article, the only reason I'm not that photo is because I had one of the Lord's army that stood in the gap and continued to appear before heaven and say, Father, not my nephew Lucas Connell. He's going to be a giant killer. Father, I'm back again. Don't you forget my nephew Lucas Connell. He's going to be a giant killer. See, remember I said to you that my auntie did these three things Jesus sort of did. I'm just about done. My auntie came down to where I was at. So does Jesus. My auntie embarrassed me with generosity. So does Jesus. My auntie stood in the gap and prayed for my salvation. Jesus didn't. The Bible says that Jesus intercedes for the saints. 
but he's banking on the fact that the saints would be so moved by the love of God that they would push apathy to the side, that they would not just live for materialistic things, that they would occasionally turn off the television and go into a quiet room where nobody else is watching and appear before heaven and say, Father, I'm here on behalf of my children, on behalf of my family, on behalf of my friends, on behalf of my city, on behalf of my my workplace. See, my question for you, and we're going to pray into it in just a moment, is who will you carry to the place of salvation? Who will you not judge but go down to where they're at? Who will you use your resources for generosity? And who will you pray? Before I pray into that, I wonder if you're here today and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. Just like me, 17, 18 years ago, I walked into a church where for the very first time in my life, someone gave an opportunity for me to invite Jesus into my life and to make him the Lord of my life. I want to pray for two groups of people right now. If you've never, ever given your life to Jesus, and today is the first day that you've heard the gospel today, and you're saying, you know what? Today's the day I'm drawing a line in the sand, and I'm going to take a step of faith. I'm going to take a risk, and I'm going to give my life to Jesus today. I want to pray for you in just a minute if this is the first time you've done this. But at the same time, I want to pray for another group of people. And maybe you've done this before, but you know in your heart of hearts, you're just not right with God. Somewhere along the road, you took a wrong turn and now you've found yourself away from God. You know the thing I love about people being away from God? And I want you to remember this forever, is the furthest that you can ever be from God, the absolute furthest. Because there'll be people sitting in this room and you're like, Lucas, if you knew what I'm into, if you knew how far I am from God, the furthest that you can ever be from God in life is one sentence. It's as far as you can ever be from Him. One sentence that says, God, I'm sorry for where I've ended up. Would you come and live in my heart again? And he says, I've been waiting for you to say that. I believe there's a whole heap of people in this room and you just know you're not right with God. And God has sent me here today because he's crazy about you. He loves you and he wants you to live the best life possible. And that's always with him. So if you're in this place today and you've either never given your life to Jesus or you have, but you know you're not right with Jesus, In just a second, I'm going to ask everyone to close their eyes, to bow their heads. I'm not going to call you out the front. But in just a moment, after I get everyone to close their eyes, I'm going to count to three. And when I get to three, if you'd say, Lucas, include me in your prayer. I either need to give my life to God for the first time, or Lucas, I'm not right with God. and I need to get right with Him. When I get to three, I'll get you to lift your hand. I'll see it. You put it down. And I'm simply going to include you in the prayer that I'm about to pray. If every person would close their eyes and bow their heads like I said if you're in either of those two groups when I get to three you lift your hand one friend I tell you he loves you more than you've ever dreamed or imagined two it doesn't matter what you've done where you've been or who you are you're God's precious son or precious daughter three all over this place right now come on yeah I see your hand I see your hand I see your hand I see your hand over there as well I see your hand there I see your hand there 
Come on, someone else, just nice and high, lift your, show me your hand if that's you. Yeah, see your hand there as well. There's already about seven people. Come on, no, there's more. Come on, if your heart is pounding out of its chest, it's because God is putting his finger on it. Yeah, I see your hand there as well. So good. Come on, someone else. Come on, some, yeah, I see your hand there. So glad we waited. Come on, someone else. Come on, don't go home the same way you came in if you're not right with God. Make a decision. Today's the day I'm surrendering to him. Come on, yeah, I see your hand, young man. Good on you, buddy. Good on you, man. Come on, someone else. I just feel like there's more. Come on, someone else. Someone else. Come on. Friend, he loves you so much loves you so much come on i feel like there's someone else right now that you're in the valley of decision and i feel like you're a man and i tell you your pride is trying to stop you to step into all that god has for your life come on every eye closed right now if that's you lift your hand right now right now if that's you lift your hand come on yeah i see your hand there as well so awesome come on good come on someone else is there anyone else yeah i see your hand sir so proud of you good on you come on every eye closed every head bowed here's what i'll do one last time every person that lifted their hand. One more time, I want you to put up nice and high. Every eye closed, nice and high, because I don't want to miss one person for this prayer. Okay, every person that did it. Come on, just nice and high, unashamedly. Nice and high. Come on, you're surrendering your life to Jesus. Come on, good. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Awesome. So good, you can put your hands down. Here's what we're going to do. I want to pray. If you were one of the nine people that lifted your hands, I want you to repeat these words with me with all your heart. It's simple prayer that helps you connect with God. But as a church family, we're going to celebrate this moment right now. And we're going to pray the prayer with you. So let's all pray together. But if you're one of those nine, mean it with all your heart. Say, Dear Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sin. Thank you that you forgive me for everything that I've done wrong. Today, I surrender my life to you. Help me to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, awesome. Why don't we give those guys a big round of applause?